and welcome to the Full of Beans podcast, hosted by myself, Hannah Hickenbotham. Throughout these podcast episodes, we will speak to a range of individuals about their experience of eating disorders, with the aim of increasing awareness and understanding, whilst reducing stigma and isolation. Please note that the topics discussed in this podcast may be triggering for some individuals, so tread lightly, check in with yourself, and reflect on these conversations. Today I'm joined by Veronica Kamerling, a care representative for the Quality Eating Disorders Network at the Royal College of Psychiatry. Veronica is an expert by experience as she has supported two daughters through eating disorder recovery and now works to help families and professionals. We will together explore Veronica's personal experience and talk about codependency. Hello Veronica. Hello there. How are you? I'm very well and thank you for inviting me to do this. I'm much no. looking forward to it. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm really ex- I'm really excited to speak to you actually. I've been thinking a lot about codependency myself the last week. Um so this podcast has come perfectly timed. So to kick us off, I wanted to kind of um understand your experience of, you know, why you're a care representative now. Um, so I wondered if you could explain to us your personal experience of your daughters having eating disorders. Yes, um, absolutely. Well, I, my youngest daughter, when she was 14, uh, developed uh, anorexia. And at the time, I knew very, very little about the illness because this is going back, back a while and it wasn't anything like so much talked about or even known about. And she became very thin and changed her behavior, which sort of alerted me to some, that something was wrong. And in the end, it, it, um, it turned out that it was, it was anorexia and she was subsequently admitted to an anorexia cl- uh, clinic. Wow. The, 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 my other daughter, age 16, although we feel that she may become bulimia, had bulimia and binge eating, earlier than that uh, but however it sort of manifested itself when she was 16 and bulimia and binge eating is a much more or was for us a much more entrenched illness and for a family we find it more difficult to deal with partly because the person who has bulimia by and large looks very normal so people were always saying, oh, I don't know what's wrong with you. You look fine. And the trouble is things aren't fine because she suffered from um, a lot of depression. Mm-hmm. And so it was a bit of an uphill struggle and therefore took a much longer than my youngest daughter to get into recovery. That's really interesting about what you said, how... And I think that's so common and it's something I've heard a lot in that, you know, if people outwardly look okay, people just assume they're okay and therefore getting treatment and getting the right support is so much more difficult. Do you think, what were the biggest things you noticed as a family that would, I mean, obviously there's the behaviours that are quite different, but was there a different in kind of the characteristics? They were completely, well, as you say, they are two different people, so they were completely different. And that, that was highlighted by the fact that my youngest daughter, when she was first born, was born upside down, basically below her navel, and had it, and so was already developed a very determined attitude, which I'm sure people listening to this will realize that's part of anorexia. Mm-hmm. But uh, it also uh, played quite a part in her recovery. She was, she became very determined to get into recovery. So she was, determined and didn't rely on me nearly as much as my eldest daughter. So she wasn't at all needy. She knew where she wanted to go. And when it was all said and done, when she walked out of this sort of uh, eating disorder clinic that she was in, she'd had uh, three years aftercare. And one day she simply got up and said, do you know what, mum, I'm I'm really out of here. I'm just not going to do this anymore. Mm. So, which as you can imagine, (laughs) was quite surprising. Now, my other daughter, my oldest daughter, bulimia, was a very different uh, kettle of fish. Uh, she was very needy, um, looking to me to make decisions, although I think deep down she didn't want them, if you know what I mean, so it was a mm. bit I mean, it was a bit at odds. 
but she was much more needy than than her youngest uh, sister. And also having the two illnesses, both which bore, which was, which is the really surprising bit. They bore no resemblance to each other. Their behaviors were different. Their needs were different. Their relationship with me was different. And so I looked at it and I thought to myself, you know what, it, it, it's extraordinary this because I'm living in the same house as two people who've got uh, you know, serious illnesses presenting differently. And the only common denominator, as far as I could see, was that they had an eating disorder. So it would, I, I, and oddly, you know, I learned a lot from that on how to sort of cope with both illnesses at the same time. Yeah. And I mean, I think that's just absolutely incredible that, you know, you are so dedicated and did help them both because I think having one child with an eating disorder, you know, nobody teaches you how to do that. You know, nobody teaches how to raise a child, but kind of you have to learn as you go along. So it must have been incredibly hard for you to learn as you were going along for two completely different things to help with. It was. And of course, you know, in those days, as I keep keep saying, is that there wasn't anything like so much information out there and probably not such a... Uh, for carers, we weren't probably uh, so well recognized I think mm -hmm. is, is is the word so but as I'm somebody who really doesn't sort of sit around and worry wonder what I should be doing next that's not really in my in my psyche I did get you know I I got going and I set about finding out all about the information what what I could do where I could go and I think that's a very important point for uh, carers actually you need to educate yourself, which may not be quite the right word, but to get um, alongside what information is available, who the people are, how the system works, because you then can understand what, where everybody's going. Um, and it's an important part, I think, of, of, of caring, actually, for the person that, um, or the people that you love. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think in no way should you know, a carer think that they're the one that needs to have the answer. But I think by educating yourself, I think it just allows you to have a little bit more of an understanding of what's going on, especially as if it's something that you yourself have never been through. I think that's part of that for me is always part of the difficulty. Um, I know that I kind of had that difficulty when I was struggling with my mum and dad, they just couldn't comprehend what I was doing and why I was doing it and you know I didn't really understand why I was doing it at the time and I think that's one of the biggest battles but to just be able to kind of understand that an eating disorder is a thing and it does happen I think kind of takes down that barrier a little bit. Uh, you know it does um, and it, it is and I think I think also what's under underplayed is the the importance of what is driving the eating disorder and that for me and for us was very much focused around the emotions mm. our food you know could become um, an issue but by and large it was about us all communicating better as a family and centering around what was something that did what didn't work on that mm. on those themes of emotions in our family that was still driving the sort of low self-esteem that, that people have and what well, all that goes with um, eating disorder behaviors mm. so was that kind of the work that you did in treatment was it working out your family dynamic and trying to understand maybe what needed to change in order to help your two daughters uh, well, uh, are you talking about what I was doing in codependent in my codependency work, or in my, or just generally in the treatment? Kind of just generally, I guess, because I'm kind of kind of point that I wanted to come on to was I how do I how do I put this? Well, the way that you just said it, and this might be being controversial, but I think we have to have those questions sometimes. But the way that you just said it, it kind of sounded like you'd put the blame on your family dynamic. 
Oh no, 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 absolutely not. No, I no, I, I would. No, that's never. what I wanted to clarify. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. We're we're uh, we we saw it as a family that we're all in it together. Yeah, uh, and and that was actually the in, in one of the the real reasons that we work collaboratively. That my um, both my daughters got into recovery for, for I agree, different reasons. But I spent a lot of time with my youngest daughter in family therapy in the mm. clinic, trying to understand what was going on, which I have to say in those days was a very tough ask. Uh, it, it sort of, you, you didn't leave with that sort of cosy feeling, I have to say. I, um, but that's just how, how I, I felt. I found, I found it personally difficult. But nevertheless, it was a learning curve to understand where my daughter was in how she saw her parents and mm. the influence that her parents were having on her. And, you know, as a parent, you, there's no point in saying, well, I'm sorry, I'm perfect. I'm, that doesn't really apply. And you just got to get on with it. I mean, that is not the answer. <laughs> and um, and so, no, we 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 work. Um, we did work definitely collaboratively and and as parents and, and well speaking about myself I was actually willing to learn and I think that stemmed from the fact that I I felt that perhaps my own parents hadn't given me the time and space to talk about what I really felt about life and myself I know one shouldn't talk about oneself the whole time but you know it is it, it, is, it is important I think to allow children to discuss how they feel and try and listen to that and and um, run with it really yeah absolutely and I'm so glad that you that I asked you that question to clarify that um and I think like you said I think being able to talk through it um in order to understand what's going right and what's not and your relationship with your parents I think can have such a big impact on how you develop as an individual um which I guess leads us on to the codependency stuff that we wanted to talk about um and I guess I really want to hear about your experience of the treatment that you had which was related to codependency but for people listen if they're not quite sure what that term means would you just be able to explain what that means uh yes it's uh, fun enough it is it's always quite quite difficult and so Basically, codependency um, can be defined as any relationship in which two people become so invested in each other uh, that they can't function independently. Um, and your mood and happiness and identity are, are defined by the other person. Mm. And you're sort of, well, I mean, people laugh about being sort of joined at the hip, but you, you need well, I, I'm going to talk personally about this because it doesn't affect everybody in the same way. Sure. But it has a, it, for 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 me, it meant that I I needed to be helping to feel good about myself. Mm. And I don't know whether that will resonate with anybody, but that sort of is how it went. So that's why you get very close because I thought, you know, if I go on helping, I'll feel better. My daughter will feel better. And we're all going to be much better. Uh, and uh, and it sort of, it was triggered initially by her being, I suppose, we're, uh, by our close, our existing closeness. We're very, very alike, she and I. So I think that when she became ill, it triggered something in my head to actually help help her but help her beyond normal parenting I think that's mm. where codependency becomes the boundary becomes between code um, sort of helping in a more controlling fashion and normal parenting does that does that make sense yeah yeah I really think it does I think um it, it from what you're saying it almost sounds like and correct me if I'm wrong but her being ill meant that you could get closer but then by you getting closer through wanting to help her it then got all a bit tangled up and then your identity kind of became that relationship became you helping her rather than the 
normal kind of parenting and helping but that was kind of who you were yes and of course the other thing about um codependency is that you you don't allow the person um who's ill to take responsibility for themselves Mm. and i sort of never asked myself whether all this constant helping and what i called advice um, and of course felt that it should be taken <laughs> mistakenly <laughs> you listen to me because i'm a parent and i've got it right you know um, uh, which is was very much the, the thinking i mean why wouldn't you listen to your mother so it, it it's yes it's about taking responsibility away from them mm. so they never make decisions about their own life now of course that looks fine but the trouble is it ends up with not with that person not learning by their mistakes which is an essential part of growing up absolutely in my view. i mean if you do not make mistakes you are no, you aren't going to learn and you will just continue to do the same thing i mean if nothing changes nothing changes and mm. and it's a very important point i completely and totally didn't recognize that and to some extent my eldest daughter still asks me questions which i know had i not been quite so over controlling uh, or codependent whichever way you like to look at it uh, she she would have worked out for herself and experienced mm. and i do think it is an important lesson um or something that one needs to take into more than consideration if you're thinking about codependency it's really interesting because when you were describing kind of the relationship that you had in terms of like you know you making the decisions and your daughter kind of never making a mistake or something because you were making those decisions so ultimately if something went wrong that would be down to you I thought that was really interesting because that almost and again I'm talking personally here but that almost was my experience of having an eating disorder in that for so long I didn't have to make a decision because my eating disorder just told me what to do and if I did do something wrong then you know it would it would be most of the time it would be because I'd gone against what my eating disorder had said so it was like everything that kind of I did was okay because that's what my eating sort of told me to do and you know things like if I didn't go to a social occasion and then my friends got annoyed at me well it wasn't me that did it it's because I've got an eating disorder and that for me made recovery really really hard because it was escape it was like it was a blanket of a comfort blanket of if I if I do anything wrong it's fine because I can just say I've got an eating disorder so do you think that was kind of similar for your daughter in that if she did make a mistake it was kind of well, I didn't make that decision, so it's okay. Yes, uh, and uh, and that is exactly the, the point that um, though dealing dealing with those who are ill, like, like my daughter, is that they need to own their decisions because if they're always being made for them and they don't like them, they can say, well, that's fine, it wasn't my decision it was my mother's Mm. and that is a very real problem and it 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 is exactly it it is exactly like that Uh, and and that's precisely what happened to my eldest daughter and I why why would you change if somebody's keeping you uh, safe or Mm. what you thought to be to be safe and and it's 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 sort of um, it's so odd that one actually doesn't ever think to your to, to oneself. Well, is anybody getting any better with all this helping? And that's something I never said to myself. I just put, kept piling on more and more helping. And of course, the other thing that it does, as everybody knows, if you make mistakes and then get it right, it your self esteem goes up. So if people are making decisions for you, your self-esteem will remain almost static because you've not done it yourself. And so, as I say, there is this real boundary of, of codependency 
and normal parenting. And getting that right is very, very mm. difficult when you have somebody who is um, not well. And the other thing that is also difficult is the risk factor of suddenly realizing that this isn't working. What do we do about it? And then acknowledging that letting go and letting them run their lives um, is what is going to have ultimately, um, as it did with us, um, people getting into recovery. That's why Absolutely. it's a really important subject to, if you to to do to get your head around if you feel that you have this trait. Just before we go on to the treatment that you received for the codependency. How did your other daughter find your relationship with your elder daughter? Ah, well, my my youngest daughter with my eldest daughter. Mm. Um, well, that's a very good point. Uh, they'd always been slightly competitive. And I think, and I'm, again, having going to be honest here, as far from the perfect parent, if you've got a child in a family who has been ill from birth and it's the youngest child, and because she was incredibly ill with all this, she had all sorts of um, things wrong with her, as I explained before, which took, in essence, four years to get right. Uh, other siblings are not going to be uh, very amused by one person getting all the attention. Yeah. And so the build-up in a way had started very much there. And I, I will hold my hands up and say that I did spend a, a lot of time, and I suppose in hindsight, more time than I should, looking after Vanessa to try and keep that show on the road. And I'm in no doubt that it did affect my eldest daughter because it gave the seeds of um, insecurity, lack of self-worth, all that sort of thing. You know, it doesn't really matter how young you are, but they start to creep in and you pick up those messages very early on in childhood. And I think that so the the sort of sibling rivalry, if you like, it's maybe a bit strong, started very, very early on um, in their relationship. It, it didn't improve for quite some time, actually. And for a variety of reasons now, I think principally because they've got their own homes, they're both married and they've both got children they are joined at the hip. Uh, hmm. I mean, now now I don't get a look in. Well, that's that's a real drama, I can tell you. So I'm now surplus to requirements. So, <laughs> um, But it's lovely to see because I, I didn't have that sort of relationship with my brother. And I think it's incredibly important that they, they do get on. And of course, I've got a son as well, who has been, I need, I really need to mention actually his input to this. He's been a real help to his parents and to his sisters because he doesn't get so much into the action or, or, or sort of the drama of it all, but he's very much on the sidelines there to help, assist, and give advice if, if he's um, required, so to speak. But he's been um, massively supportive. And I think, again, that's done a lot for the um, recovery process. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's fantastic that he's been able to provide that support, because I think often in this situation, you kind of, you know, with with your two daughters, it can go one of two ways in that either the, the sibling, you know, that doesn't have an eating disorder can get kind of pushed out because naturally you know going through treatment that requires a lot of time and a lot of input from the parents so sometimes yeah, the sibling might feel pushed out but I think there can be a lot of anger as well and you know why are you getting so much attention um so I think the fact that he was able to support your two daughters is absolutely fantastic 
No, it was, and 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 he's he continues to do so. But he, I think he often feels there's a lot of chat about his sisters, and and I do remember him saying to me once, "Does anybody ever talk talk about me rather woefully?" Which was rather sad. But we, we, we no, we do talk about him, and and um, he, as I say, it would emphasise that he he's because he's sort of one step back. Um, you know, he's sort of seen a bigger picture and, and is helpful mm. in that way. I suppose a question, if if somebody is listening and maybe um, one of their children has an eating disorder and the other doesn't, how did you manage that relationship in, ter- in terms of making sure that your son still felt included in the family and, you know, you still pr- gave him time and did normal family activities? Because I can imagine having two daughters with an eating disorder did take up a lot of time. Well, I, I think actually having said all that about my son, I think that if you were to ask him honestly, that he he did feel that when he came sort of home at the weekends, because he's older, so okay. he was sort of at university um, at the time, or he left, he'd just come back from a gap year and then he went to university. And I, he, to be honest, he felt it, pretty stressful coming home and when everything was about the eating disorder all the chat um, and and everything that went with it and interestingly he I asked him to write a piece for me that I could do when I do some of these presentations that I do on talks and he he said that he wasn't he was more worried about um, my um, ex-husband and I my parents than he was about his sisters, because he felt that it put such an enormous strain mm. on the family that uh, you know it was not looking good at one at one stage from his perspective. And I thought that was interesting, actually, an interesting insight to to what he was thinking. Because I naturally thought you know he'd be worried about his sisters twenty four seven, but it didn't turn quite it didn't turn out like that to be like that. I think um, I think you've raised a really good point there in that often you know the the having somebody in the family have an eating disorder whilst it's nobody's fault it is it can be a really stressful situation and I I think that that's often forgotten about in terms of the impact that that does have on parents um you know and especially you know some people are single parents some people are in relationships and and that can make that relationship quite rocky but I don't think that's ever I mean, it, it might be more so nowadays, um, but I definitely remember when I went to family therapy, there was no, you know, are you two coping in your relationship? It was just, how are you supporting Hannah? Yes, um, exactly. And I think I would say to Kara, uh, who are listening, that it is important that you involve those who are not or, or become equal it's difficult to become equal-handed, but as equal-handed as is possible for in a normal, give them a more a, a normal, you know, existence, a non-eating disorder life, because however hard one tries, if you're, you know, my son will at times have felt very left out. He was just the sort of character that didn't affect. But I'm over the years and having run eating disorders of carers for 18 years, I've heard families tell me that the siblings have been affected. So where it's humanly possible, they do need tender loving care as well and interest in what they're doing and, and so on. And of course, you know, this always sounds sort of slightly impossible and, and well, you know what, I don't know if I can do that, but I think to see it from another angle, is that for the person who's got the eating disorder, they have seen a more balanced life. You know, what is a balanced life? It's not all about the eating disorder. It's mm. actually a normal family living, which is what basically one is trying to achieve where, when for, for the people who are trying to get into recovery. Yeah. It's how do normal people live? How do normal people go about their business? And so if you can demonstrate that in life, 
uh, I, uh, in your own family, that's already, um, I think, quite a good idea. Yeah, and I think as well, it goes back to when we were saying, you know, why would I want to recover because I've got this safety blanket, my eating disorder. Equally, if I think if you do centralise your whole entire life around the eating disorder and all your family centralise it as well, it's kind of, oh, well, why would I want to get better when the attention's always on me and we do what I want to do? Whereas if, you know, you've got more of that normal family life of doing things what other people want to do and not centralising it around the eating disorder, I think that can definitely promote recovery as well. Oh, completely. And that's why I'm so keen. And laughingly, I didn't do it myself until, until much later on. But caring for yourself mm. and looking after yourself demonstrates sort of self-care to the person who's 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 ill and what I think you have to think about is when you're demonstrating a more normal existence is that you're really become a sort of coach to the person who's not well in terms of setting them up for what the outside world is about mm -hmm. and my mother before she died is a really good example it may have looked tough on me, but there was some pretty, um, uh, how can I put it, sort of quite tough examples of what she expected from, from me, how to live my life. But I look back on that and the, uh, uh, the boundaries that she expected as being the best lesson I could ever have had or learned from later life. And one needs those examples and um, not so much rules, but boundaries set in uh, disciplines, if you like. It's not, or not quite the right word, but definitely some guidelines, put it as guidelines, mm -hmm. on, on how you expect them to, to live um, uh, so that when they go out into the world, they can live by them and not become more stressed out or become ill again yeah absolutely um or continue to rely on you and not be able to navigate anything in in the world um which I guess leads us on to the codependency stuff and the treatment that you had um so when you were getting that treatment what did that involve in terms of kind of looking into the codependent relationship you had with your daughter <clears throat> Well, the first, the first thing that started was that, and I did this alongside my daughter. Well, I mean, we were in different parts of the clinic, but it was in the same clinic as my eldest daughter. And the first thing that happened, which was completely brilliant, we had a workshop for four weeks, I think it was a month before we started the 12-step program, where there were 12 of us on it. We all sat around and talking about our insecurities, uh, anxious um, anxieties about ourselves and this was the first time that I felt safe that I could talk about how I really felt so before I even came onto the program I, I already felt much better because I felt that I bonded with people it was extraordinary we'd all had very similar upbringings um, to a certain point and it was it was just such a luxury to be supported by 11 other people and not thought of as completely wacky and you know get your life together and you know, we all feel we don't you know lots of us don't feel well and then we went on to do the 12-step program which is essentially again coming back to setting boundaries uh, letting go which in my particular case would be losing, you know, putting down the control that codependency brought for, for me, uh, handing back that um, responsibility of caring for themselves and taking responsibility for, for their lives and the problems that they, that they have. And I suppose learning about why blame and guilt is uh, not helpful and actually leads for very negative thinking. It's okay to be me. You 
don't have to help the whole world to be a good person. <laughs> and um, sort of generally what normal living would be like to somebody who didn't have those traits. And you sort of detach with love from the person that you're looking after. And what that goes with, and I acknowledge this to be a real problem for carers, and that is <clears throat> the risks that that might require in letting go. Because there's always, if I let go, will X, Y, and Z happen? And it's, it, it is difficult, actually, and I would never underestimate that. Mm -hmm. But slowly but surely, over the 12 steps, uh, which is a tough program, I'm not making any secret of that, it suited me very well because it's very clear cut and I found that so I found it easy to follow but it was that camaraderie of of understanding of how one ticked oneself and why one had become codependent in the first place what had what what, what had happened that this had all come to this state in the in the end I don't know if any of that makes any any sense but it it's the most empowering program for somebody who has these traits. I think it sounds so interesting because, you know, like rationally, that makes so much sense in that if you have insecurities yourself and then you see, and this is going to sound horrible, but you see someone that's maybe a bit weak and you think I can help them. Like, you know, I, I can be the one to help them. So then you put everything in to help them. You then get your self-worth through helping that person. So I can completely imagine why that would be so difficult to then separate because to then say, actually, I'm not going to help you as much. Your self-worth is wrapped up in that relationship. So mm. I can imagine that would be really difficult, but equally it makes so much sense in terms of kind of, you know, if you are insecure, putting your self-worth into that. And it kind of, I don't know whether it's a similar thing because, and I guess this is my question for you, but when people maybe have like a dependency on exercise and they put their self-worth into their exercise or just generally like an eating disorder, you know, the way that they eat and that they put their self-worth into maybe having that control. Do you think that is a, is that codependent or is that just dependent because, you know, the food and the exercise aren't getting something back? No, well, I mean, you're you're right in terms of uh, in terms of, of exercise. What exercise does does to you? Because you you get a buzz from exercise, and for me, I used to get a buzz from helping, mm. and that's why it it gathered more steam and more steam. And also, although I mean, it's you know, there's no point in in, in not being honest about these things. If you are a sort of codependent as, like I am, you don't keep your helping to just the people in your family and that your ears prick up when somebody's not well or somebody needs I mean anything done any advice you, you've got antennae that can tune in to helping other people in this massively unhealthy manner and the other thing which is I mean I don't know why I mean I just feel that if you're going to have this conversation one needs to be brutally honest absolutely and and of course I look back on all the people that I helped in this period that weren't my family and I realize in the end that they were friends because of my helping rather than mm. that solid base you get from helping and that was pretty something quite big to have to admit to myself it's, it's not that I don't like them that's not the point. I, 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 do, I do like them, but I realize that I don't have the same connection to them because I, the connection has been the overhelping. Does that, that sort of mm. make, and, it, and it's, it is, it's, it was pretty shattering if I was honest to look back on that and have to admit um, that that's how it had gone. And I still, need uh, I used to go for top up actually because mm -hmm. like a lot of traits uh, you don't get over them overnight so I used to go for top up just to remind myself 
that I am a good person without um, trawling the country for somebody to help and, and keep telling my um, children how to live their lives and knowing best on every situation. And you, these things can creep in, but I'm hoping I've got sort of um, the best of my ability. I've got it under, I've got it under control now. <laughs> You've got this under control now. The key to it is that it gives you permission. The 12-step program gives you permission, I think, to be yourself, drop the control, and the joy that comes from being a more normal parent. And I remember, I remember, I cannot tell you how well I felt and how differently I felt and how differently I viewed people, the world, um, and everything about it when I had got this problem sorted. <laughs> mm. I think it's really interesting what you said because I do resonate quite a lot. Um, and I think, you know, I've had the conversation in this sort of community a lot before and a lot of the time people with eating disorders are people pleasers and I know definitely for myself um I'm trying very hard to work at it but I get a buzz from you know if someone can't like if nobody can help someone and then I'm the person that can help them that makes you feel incredible because you're like oh like I had the talent to be able to help them but I think it's the issue comes when you can't help somebody then, like we said before, your self-worth is wrapped up in helping them and then you can't. That means ultimately you're a bad person and you don't actually think about the role that the other person is having to play in that dynamic. Yes. Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's quite complicated stuff, but I think all the, the actions, whether you're, you know, running or helping or doing anything is about managing your self-esteem mm. and not being phased every five minutes by I'm a bad person nobody loves me and therefore I've got to turn to this helping to try and get my life back in order and thereby destroying destroying is a bit of a harsh word but not helping other people's Mm. Uh, although that's what you think you're doing the the interesting thing is that for this in this workshop for the four weeks that I did it prior to the, the program and now in my workshops that I do myself for, for, for carers is that and certainly for me the question always is um, why do I have a codependent um, tendency and I think I'm right in saying that it's, it's quite well recognized that for a lot of people, and certainly for myself, this built up in my childhood, which is why I alluded to my eldest daughter picking up on the fact that I didn't spend much time with her and was 24-7 with her sister. And in my childhood, although I love my parents, I never felt as good as my brother, who was always sort of slightly presented as, as, as a wonder boy. Hmm. And that stayed, that has stayed with me. And that's what I meant when I said earlier on about the trigger. It, it was a trigger to now sort of prove that I was, I was a really good person and and um, I could I could really help people, and people were going to really appreciate what I did, <laughs> and make up for all that sort of lack, perhaps, of empathy in 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 my early childhood, mm -hmm. which sounds very harsh. And I'm not blaming parents at all, but I'm just recognizing that if one comes, and I did, from a family who gave me wonderful life in so many respects and so many guidelines, as I've said about my, my, my mother. But for me, it, with my sort of mental makeup, um, I, I always felt slightly the underdog and um, sort of lack of 
self-worth. So what do you do now if, if you sort of feel that need for wanting to help or wanting to rescue somebody, what sort of things do you do to rein yourself in? Um, (laughs) I've got a sort of checklist of um, things that I would have maybe done in the past and Mm. I don't do now. One of the things that is incredibly helpful for people to, to think about, and I suppose I draw on this as well, is active listening, which as we all know is a skill. It's not about, it's, it's more than listening, it's mm. hearing. And in active listening, you do, do very little talking. So it almost prevents you from actually talk, telling people what to do. You're, you're actually conducting conversation whereby they make the decisions. So that takes a, a bit of the codependency element out of it mm. because the questions are, as I, I'm sure you know, are, are developed to, to turn it round to the person who's not well or the person you're talking to who's, who needs your help that they're doing the talking and the answering and the, the, the sort of setting of the next stages of whatever it is they want to um, talk about. So that helps me. And I suppose I've, I've sort of recognised just how I, you know, how I need to be because it's, it's very now very different in how I used to behave. And I can easily see immediately when I overstep the mark mm. and, and it becomes much more of a control than a, than a, than a, um, and, uh, yes, a normal parenting. Mm. And, you know, with regards to your eldest daughter, was it just you that she had this sort of codependent relationship with or has it affected other relationships? For her? Mm. Has it affected her, her relationships with other people? Mm. Well, the funny thing is, is about um, life. I, all I can do is to give you an example of what, what can happen and certainly happened with us. If I, I mean, it would be wrong of me to sit here and say, you know, I've got two daughters with um, uh, eating disorders, but there's, there's nothing wrong with me. I'm a perfectly normal individual. And whilst I haven't had the a fully blown eating disorder, I do display some of the um, behaviours of it, a codependency being one. And I can start to become very much like an eating disorder person myself. I know, sort of, um, how can I describe? I have to sort of think through what I do during the day and what I'm going, how I'm going to lead the life to feel okay in my head, all those sorts of things. So what I'm trying to to display is I have these sorts of dances, if you like. So I would become more like her with her eating disorder thought process, and she would become more like me in my codependency role I don't know whether that makes any sense at all but you can swap roles very very easily and do a sort of dance and so I think that's one of the reasons that we we sort of understand each other because we are fully aware of I slide into her role and she can slide into or when she you know her role as it was and 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 she can slide into mine Mm. and and I do remember an instant when I was in, in one of my um, sort of eating disorder roles. And I went to, to sort of um, irritate her because that my head was saying, you know, you need to irritate somebody. <laughs> and, I went, and she said, do you know what, mum, just, just leave the room. I know where we're going. It's not going to help. Can we just stop the conversation? And I remember thinking, do you know, that's really, but then of course you have to manage that in your head, which is difficult, mm-hmm. but anyway. That's that's a, a dance which she and I have done, and and, and I, th- there are I've heard of other people telling that 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 works for them as well. Yeah, I think um, I had a, a similar experience, and I remember somebody explaining to me that it's almost like 
you've got like hooks that are certain shapes and some people your hook like tetris your hook won't fit into whereas other people your hook will lock and it will be there like absolutely rigidly stuck and for me it was being you know I really wanted to help and I want I was people pleaser and I really wanted to help and this other person wanted the help and wanted the help from somebody like me so when we came together we hooked we tetris so hard and then breaking down that relationship it, it then needed to be broken down because you know it wasn't a family member so it was somebody that kind of it was a negative relationship in my life but then getting rid of that relationship as quick as it hooked on it then took months and so much emotion involved in it because obviously that was my way of like my self-worth that was their self-worth and it just it was messy um (laughs) but I think I think that kind of is what you're saying there in terms of you like dance around each other and you realize that you're a really good partnership but I mean in my case especially it was a toxic one Yes, no, you, you, you do. And, and because we're so alike, I mean, I can see it coming a mile off uh, if I'm going to be sort of drawn into anything again. And I do, I do still actually, if I'm going to be completely honest, have to sometimes double think it about how I'm going to carry this conversation without drifting into it um, mm. again. It, it's, it, it's like all those behaviors you know there's an awareness mm-hmm. and if there's an awareness and you manage it then yeah. you're less likely to um sort of go into overdrive again I think is, is mm. how to put it but it yeah. it uh, it's a it's a constant awareness uh, mm. it happens you know I've got um I, I've got you know lots of people who I'm sure would need my help but I'm nervous in a, in, a, in a way, I just don't feel secure enough for these people to help them because I feel I shall be drawn into it again. My self-esteem will start to plummet. I will have to go through the process of telling myself that, you know, the whole world doesn't hate me. Um, mm-hmm. it, it's, it's, it's an interesting um, situation, actually, but you have to be very aware of, of what you do and how you do it and who you do it with. Mm. I yeah. think is how I feel absolutely I think having that awareness I guess that that is how I see recovery from an eating disorder is you know sometimes those thoughts or those behaviors might crop up but you've got an awareness of them and you know how to kind of navigate them and you've got coping mechanisms for sort of working your way around them um so thank you so much for that conversation I thought it was so interesting and I resonated with so much of it um I've got some questions from the listeners about codependency that have been sent in um so if you're okay to go through a couple absolutely um so the first one it's kind of I think they they sent it in as from like the perspective of somebody that has an eating disorder but also kind of the perspective of someone that's looking at or like that's supporting somebody um and it was kind of around the the ways how can both of you manage the change in the individuals with eating disorders needs so you know when somebody's in the depth of eating disorder they often need a lot of support but then as they start to recover they become more individual and that for both parties I can imagine is quite difficult so do you have any tips on managing that change in the kind of dynamic and need what from the early stages to the later stages Mm. yeah um well I I'm my my personal view is is that in the early stages, I think you need to be, how can I put it, careful about how much codependent um, skills you work with. Because I think in the early stages, there is a huge need for the person who is not well to feel um, loved, uh, respected uh, and and that things you know um, safe in their house mm. 
And and as that goes on and people get better, then I think you need what you need to do to, is to ad address again that boundary between parenting and uh, you know over helping if you like and i think it's i think it's a process that evolves with as i've just said the awareness of what can happen if you start to do too much helping and i suppose one of the you have to keep looking at it it's a process i don't and and as the person starts to get better then you move much more into the emotional side of things and not so much in the food which is what needs to be managed very much at the beginning mm. of, of the process and then you move into the emotions as to what's driving it now and then about how as a, um, a family you can work together like I've been um, talking about and that will start to be about how you can look at what how your parenting skills are in relation to the person you're looking after and as I say, it's 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 a it's a process, and but it's underpinned by that reassurance um, to the person that you still love them, and you you're still here for them, and and also I'm a great believer in in if they'll talk, you know, talking to people. That's where the active listening comes in. So it's not one day and it's all sorted. It, you just need to move and have that awareness of when one section, if you like, finishes and another one starts. Mm, absolutely. I think you're so right. It's having the awareness of the relationship and how that might be developing and kind of the reliance on each other, but equally being adaptive and recognising that throughout the recovery that relationship will need to change. Um, and then going into, you know, life after recovery, it's it's going to change again. Um and then the other question was, so how can you rely on people to help without worrying that you're being too dependent? Um, so I think it's sort of finding that balance between how can I accept support from somebody whilst I'm recovering without being concerned that it's going to be too dependent and I'm, not, I'm then not going to be making my own choices in recovery. Well, I think you again. You 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 have to. If it looks like not normal normal parenting, and people are getting becoming too controlling, the thing about codependency is it's very controlling. Mm. So if your life is becoming controlled, rather than um, sort of by agreement, if you like, with the other person, then you're slipping into codependency, and a sort of 24-7 helping schedule you're you're doing everything you're adapting your life to suit the other person as and uh, however unhelpful it is to you you will adapt everything to collude with them basically mm -hmm. so if 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 these things are happening and again if, if nobody is getting any better then you need to think seriously about standing back, saying no, which is very difficult. That, that is extremely difficult to manage. And resort to a normal parenting. I know that if I had, if I didn't feel, feel that I was doing it, um, I was being too codependent, I would think to myself, now, if, if I was having a conversation with my son, would I, would I be talking like this? And a good example of that was, was on the telephone because my girls will drink for at least, or my eldest daughter will drink. I mean, this conversation go on for an hour and a half with me telling about exactly how they should be living their lives. And one day I said to myself, do you know, if my son rang me up, would, would, I be, would I be on the telephone for an hour and a half? And I thought, no, I wouldn't. I'd be saying, look, I'm really sorry. I'm in a terrible hurry. Can I ring you back? That would never occur to a codependent person. Mm. because it's that need to get stuck into the conversation so I think those are guidelines if, if it's over stepping normal parenting and it's not helping or seemingly helping then you that's time to step back and and have a look at it do you think it goes the other way as well in that 
um, if the person with the eating disorder becomes super controlling and makes all the decisions and everybody follows what they want to do, do is that a codependency or is that just not a great situation to be in? Yes, well, that 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 can that actually can happen that they start taking control of your life. Mm. Uh, uh, but again, it's about then that builds up a sort of fear of saying no to them in case you have to deal with the fallout of what no means, yeah. and that that is a very real situation. But again, mm. it's. It's the it's the learning curve. It's you you have to uh, to to go through with that risk of a fallout because that person who's doing the controlling has to realise that in a normal world people aren't going to take it mm. and they will react and you have to learn how you're going to react to that um, and have people not just carrying on doing what you what you want and that's sort of colluding with the illness of one sort of way. you know it's mm. no no um, no i'm sorry um but that's what not what i'm doing and in a in in a funny sort of way what what we were were taught was that not to involve yourself in any great long conversations if you were really in the thick of codependency and that one line that's very good i i'm sorry i'm I'm really sorry, I can't do that. And then not get drawn in more about why, why you, well, I want you to do this. Well, I, no, I'm sorry, I can't do that. Which sounds rather as harsh or difficult to do, but it's this ability to draw you in again to a long conversation about the whole nine yards of why you've got to help. And that that's not helpful. And it, yeah. it, it it's a real it is a real fear of a lot of carers. And indeed, I've had it myself. The fear of a row or something, some fallout. I think you know it's better just to agree. And I feel mm -hmm. badly about that because I know in my heart of hearts that wasn't right to agree. I definitely don't think you're alone in that. I remember so many instances when when I was in recovery, and you know, my mum and dad would say, "Do you know have." this and I'd be like I'm not having it I'll only have it if it's x y and z and then they'd go to the shop and get x y and z because to them it was easier to avoid the arguments rather than just you know kind of get on with it um so I'm sure definitely that that will be so helpful for so many parents um because I think that is the biggest fear is saying or doing the wrong thing in case there's an argument but ultimately like you said there needs to be things that go a bit wrong in order for people to understand that that's just life. Really, really important. Uh, nurturing, uh, I'm all for nurturing people and loving children. But in the end, what I needed to keep in mind, and um, I sort of would suggest is you need to align that in your mind with how are these children or my children or and it applied to me going to cope in the real world what mm. do I need to teach them to give them the skills uh, of being able to weather the knocks and of course you never know what the knocks are going to be and that was the fundamental lesson that my my especially my mother taught me uh, and it appeared harsh at the time it's been an absolute gift hmm. that parenting skill of, of you know of, of love but a slightly harder line to teach you the tools of coping with life which is as we all know far from easy <laughs> yeah absolutely well thank you so much Veronica it's been a pleasure to speak to you um and yeah I've taken away so many useful nuggets from that conversation no not at all Hannah I'm just delighted to do it and I hope it will be of help to to your listeners thank you very much thank you I love talking to Veronica today and I think it's so important that we explore all the different areas that could contribute to the development of an eating disorder and then also how it's maintained as well 
Next week, I'll be talking with Kendra Blake, who is an occupational therapist and also works in a holistic approach with Pilates and rebounding. With Kendra, we talk about the embodied approach that she has towards her treatment and how she supports people with their day-to-day life in eating disorder recovery. Things don't have to be perfect to be okay. And I suppose a big part of what it is to do recovery is this ability to learn how to tolerate the imperfect, that you are good enough in this moment as you are, whether you have fed hair or have made the wrong choice on the pasta that you're having for dinner while you're out with friends. Like, it's this idea that life gives us opportunities and it's about figuring it out along the way and giving yourself permission to do so. And I think a big part of the role that I play is actually being almost that mediator between someone and their illness or their recovery and saying, I'm giving you permission now to to learn. If you enjoyed listening today, you won't want to miss next week's episode, so be sure to subscribe. Eating disorders are crippling illnesses, but with the right support, they can be recovered from. We really hope you enjoyed this episode, but if you require more support right now, please look into charities such as First Steps and Beat for support or talk to someone you trust.